All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Rachel Vrayback, who is the founder of Canary. Rachel, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks. It's going well. How are you? I'm doing great. I made the decision two hours ago to have tea instead of coffee, and it was literally the best decision I ever could have made, because I'm like energetic right now, but I'm not you know, I'm not, it. Eh, I'm feeling good. So I'm feeling great. <laughs> um, that's funny because I just had a, an Americano to uh, pick me up during my mid-January slump. And um, yeah, feeling a little jittery, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah, was, I love the feeling. And usually like I do these podcasts in the afternoon and I fill up this cup right here with coffee almost every time <laughs> because I did tea today, which I never do. I, maybe I'll just do that. Maybe at one o'clock every day, I'll do tea and then I'll never need coffee for the rest of the day. What, what, a, what, a, what a big day. But today is not about our drinking habits, thinking <laughs> of caffeination habits. Today is about what you're working on with Canary. So for those who don't know, can you please describe what Canary does and, and what you're working on? Yeah. Um, so everybody has an online presence and, um, everyone's experiencing this weird discomfort with it growing. And the way I think about it is like, there are two ways that your online presence is growing. And that's like the information about you that's on the internet. Like the first is good. And that's like you creating your Netflix streaming account or you having like a bunch of matches on this dating app that you're trying. Um, And then there's like the bad way that your online presence might be growing, which is like, your Disney plus credentials getting breached and you losing control over your accounts or like somebody impersonating you on Facebook. Um, so Canary addresses the stuff you can't control and, um, how to make it convenient and easy and non-threatening for just the average person to clean up and start monitoring what's going on with their online information. So is it ultimately a way for me to, we'll go into how it, like specifically it works, but on a high level, I can put in some info, it knows who I am, and then it can tell me, hey, here's everyone who has your data, now what do you want to do about it? Is that in essence kind of the, the one of the value props of it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Cool. So let's let's go into it. So let's say, like, I'm on your site now. So so walk me through if I wanted to see who has my data, which is probably everyone. I'm so, I'm one of these people. <laughs> Where I will, I will give my data very, you know, I will give it away because I'm a very, I like, I like being an early adopter, but I realize that's like probably not a good thing. But that's where you come in. So how, how does this work? <laughs> yeah. So it starts with your email and that's it. Um, you can see on our website, it gives you a one click way to scan over 300 different sites to find instances of your email address. And we did that purposefully. So that like the barrier to entry is super low, the risk of you trying Canary is super low, and then also just gave us a really good way to get started building out the technology in the back end. Um, so then what happens behind the scenes when you enter your email is we securely store your email, and then we use web scraping and crawling technology to check um, data broker APIs. So we have a couple hundred data brokers that we uh, check for your information. Um, we search a couple search engines and return any public results that match your email. And then we also have a couple thousand account APIs that we ping to check if you have usernames and emails associated with those user accounts. So then after doing all that scanning, we return the report results to you in that email. Um, and that happens within a couple minutes. And um, 
you know, it's nice because you enter an email and then you get an email to that exact email address and there's really no wiggle room for, you know, like creepy or abusive use of this tool right now. And um, we're seeing some really uh, strong success early on. So if you're open to diving in, I'd love to hear, well, actually, let me back up. It sounds like it's a pretty technical product. Like you're connecting to a lot of things mm -hmm. um, to, to get this information. Um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, is like, what type of skill set is necessary to build this? Did you build it all yourself? Do you have a team, a technical team? Like kind of what's the team behind this, even if it's just you? Um, yeah, so there is a small team behind this. Um, I'm working with a couple of really strong engineers who have worked on web crawling and search projects in the past, like, you know, at Google and at IBM. Um, and then I have some advisors who have worked in the data privacy and security space. So, you know, it's a small and, and scrappy team and then, you know, we're just getting started, but um, that's the kind of technical skill you need. Um, my background is really just being like technically curious. So I'm a self-taught programmer and, um, I became interested in like information scraping early on. And so I've just been, you know, messing around with open source tools there and it's really come in handy. And let's dive a little deeper into that. So you've been interested in this type of stuff, this type of technology for, for, for a while. Um, what, what was the reason that you decided to build a company around this interest? Uh, I guess, why did you start Canary? Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a like, complicated path as probably most startup founders uh, experiences are. Um, but you know, mine started at a uh, political analytics company, which actually I'm seeing as a common thread across a lot of data startups nowadays. Um, so I was working at a company here in Chicago that did a lot of the analytics on the Obama campaigns. And I started realizing like how much surveillance and targeting is happening behind the scenes. Um, and I started experimenting around different ideas that would sort of return the power, the control to the individual. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. And, and it really, um, it was validated this year as doing some research on this problem of, you know, like data sovereignty. And it really became necessary to like create a company and a product around it when people told me they wanted it. So it's very interesting because I might mention one of your competitors. I don't know if you consider this a competitor, uh, but just yesterday, uh, literally yesterday, I was recording a podcast with Delphia out of out of Toronto, um, and like they kind of talked a lot about just data stuff too. And it's not just the companies; it's like millions of people just like me are like I'm giving. Like, I'm aware I'm giving my data, and then I'm aware that it's way it's way more valuable. It's like it's it's valuable, and I'm just giving it away, and I don't know what people are doing with it. Um, and uh, sorry, I just got a call, but we'll keep it in there because it's nice and raw and forward-thinking founder. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, like why why now? Um, like, was it the election that sparked all these conversations of, about data? And an additional question: um, Why did you specifically choose like this approach um, versus like? Any other, I can't think of any others, but why specifically this product to start as your beachhead? Yeah, um, you know, I, I can be honest here because it's for the founders. Um, yeah. I actually was experimenting with a very similar product to Delphia last year um, and, in, and in 2018, actually. That's what got me sort of deep into this uh, as a founder. 
Um, and the marketplace stuff is really interesting. Trying to associate an economy to people's information, um, in theory, is a great idea. But I think when you try to dissect the economics of that market, you start to realize that the theories don't hold, um, especially if you're talking about a marketplace. Now, I think the way that Delphi is handling that is super interesting because they're trying to create a hedge fund, which already uh, puts that information to use in improving their margins. Um, so that, that might work out for them. But what I found in my research and just like, does your data have value on its own? Like, it's like saying, does crude oil have value on its own? And there's a lot of processing and aggregation that has to go in to that machine to make it valuable. So what I found is like, there's this really interesting buyer seller diagram that you have to look at as somebody who wants to build a marketplace around personal data. And is there an intersection that makes sense for somebody willing to pay for data? and somebody willing to sell their data. So this is a problem and like a big macro issue that I thought a lot about. And the reason why I decided to launch a product like Canary is because A, I think that sort of orchestration of a marketplace is extremely challenging and starting a business on its own already is really challenging. Um, and two, like, I actually don't believe I wanna live in a world where like surveillance is the norm, even if you get paid for it. Like I would like to live in a world where like I can put information on the internet and not be afraid that it's gonna, you know, like spawn and be a problem in 10 years. I'd like to have agency. I'm, I'm with that. Um, I, I really like that. I feel like that's where thoughts diverge on, on the solutions. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more with that in that, I don't know, like it, the fact that Facebook, you know, in 2004 was like, we got this dope product, everyone come on. And like three billion users later, they're just <laughs> like, like they're making money off us right now, like as we talk, because they're selling ads and you know whatever. So, anyways, I, I yeah, I'm very interested in just like this world of data taking the power back, etc. Um, I I I'm wondering. Uh, usually, I ask this question a little, a little later, but it just keeps popping up in my head. Um, what? You know, so this is your be this is your beachhead like product, your first product. I'm kind of intrigued to hear your your idea for the vision for what you're what you're working on and the direction that you're going in, because um, I feel like there's, there's tons of directions you can go in. So if you're able to give some insight, would really appreciate it. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of thinking about that right now. Um, you know, I only launched you know a landing page for this idea in November of last year. So, you know, it's really recent. Um, but, you know, I think like, if Canary can grow into something that can help you monitor more than just your email, and then can do more than just web scraping and have more of a equal relationship with the companies that store and use your data, um, I could see there being like a really interesting network effect that takes place through this application where you don't have to worry about managing your personal information on the internet. You have a piece of technology that's already doing that on your behalf. Um, and so you can probably then think about a lot of interesting business cases for a piece of technology that can do that between an individual consumer and a company in a convenient way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's sort of like the vision um, in a very ambiguous way, but I think concretely, it's just like, you know, releasing small things that help people out. And uh, I mean, I kind of I kind of like that because I feel like there's a spectrum of type of founder on one side, 
there's the very, I mean, there's obviously spectrums on many levels, but what I'm referring to is there's the one side, there's like the total visionary, I can see the future 10 years from now and I'm going to build it, hurrah, let's build it. And like, that's probably not good, right? Like, let's probably, like, you need more than just vision. Um, you need a lot more, but you need vision and stuff. And then you got the founders that are, at least in the beginning, a little more like, great, like we got this product, let's let's get it out there. Like, I don't know what it's gonna look like in 10 years, but let's try to get three months out and you know, and things like that. And there's everyone in the middle. And I've learned that being the the latter is probably better in the beginning um, because I've, I've been the former in the previous yeah. startups. I'm just like, well, I'm not totally the former, I'm pretty competent, but you know what I mean? Like, it's cool that you don't know you know, you don't know what's 10 years out because you're just trying to like figure it out for today, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in this space where you have not only extremely fast paced technology uh, and then extremely like confusing political and governmental regulation, like I think it's just really one step in front of the other. Um, As much as it's fun to talk about big visions, you know, you just got to like build what you can um, and hopefully people find value in it immediately. Yeah, definitely. So let's go back to product and uh, um, let's go into some examples of uh, of what I'll find when I, so I put on my email and it'll send me an email whenever it does. But like while, while that's doing it, can you kind of give me an example or describe what type of data do I get back? Like yeah, on a very high level, like what, what should I expect in this email that's coming to me, you know, anytime? Yeah. Um, so first you'll see where your email finds direct matches. So if you go and you Google your email right now, those same results should come back in this report. So that's like step one, verifiable. Um, and then what typically happens is there's like five to seven data brokers on average that get returned for every person. Um, that's because right now pinging the data broker APIs is kind of variable. And what's a data broker? I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. What's a data broker? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a data broker is a company that exists like any other broker. So like a stock broker or a mortgage broker or a real estate broker, they are a middleman for people's information. And what they do is they amass files of billions of people's information into large databases and then they go out and sell that data to corporations um, or political campaigns but those those are data brokers and you know there are thousands of data brokers operating in the united states it's like a 300 billion dollar industry worldwide Um, and most of these data brokers have gotten people's information without their consent so they've just scraped it from linkedin or scraped it from your facebook profile Cambridge Analytica, in a sense, was a data broker. So, um, yeah, that's what I mean by data brokers. I actually want to, before you move on, uh, and I still want you to move on at some point, I want to, like, camp out here for a second because I I mean, I, I feel like I, I kind of know what's going on in tech. I, pr- I keep a pretty close like, eye on everything. Like, I've never, heard what, I've never heard of the word data broker before. So either mm-hmm. I'm just, like, out of the loop there or it's, like, not actually that well-known to people outside of the industry. So I want to, like, I want to hang out there. So... You're saying, so the, let's say, what's an example of a data broker? Like, uh, I guess, separate from Cambridge Analytica, like one that you would hook up to, what's like the name of one or the, or the category of one? Um, yeah, so like uh, Nielsen is a good example of a data broker. They do a lot of like advertising analytics. Okay. Um, 
Another example, and one that's more relatable, might be a site like Spokio. It's like a public people search database. So Spokio is creepier in a sense than a data broker like Nielsen because they have a user interface that just anybody can go onto, enter somebody's information, search, and then purchase reports on them. Okay, so I'm, I'm pulling up some websites right now to check these out. So um, this is just so interesting because I honestly, I feel like I haven't spent too much time thinking about this stuff. So it's like just interesting to learn. I feel like listeners will like it. So yeah. let's hang out around Nielsen for a second. So mm -hmm. does Facebook, when Facebook gets data on us, you know, when we click on stuff, click on events, go to it, you know, et cetera, do, do they then monetize that by selling that data to Nielsen and a billion other companies like Nielsen? Is that, or is that just like one of the ways they make money? Uh, I guess, how, how does Nielsen relate to a Google or a Facebook? Okay, that's such a good question. Um, Facebook makes most of its revenue by selling ads. So the relationship between Facebook and Nielsen is actually the other way around. Nielsen sells data to Facebook. Huh, okay, let's keep going. So, Sorry, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, and so what data does Nielsen sell to Facebook? Um, Nielsen has partnerships with point of sale systems, like the ones that run in restaurants or your grocery store. And what they specialize in is offline data. So what Nielsen's value brings to the table with Facebook is like, Facebook now knows what you buy online and they know what you like and they know who you're friends with and they know what you're recommending. But what they don't know is like when you go to, you know, the grocery store and buy something. So Nielsen has that data and they sell it to Facebook. Wow, this is blowing my mind. Wow. Yeah, and then what Facebook does, and this is actually a really big talking point right now in data privacy law. Facebook's lawyers are arguing with the state of California right now trying to defend the fact that they in fact do not sell user data. But what Facebook does is they have these dashboards that aggregate their users' data, and then sells those dashboards or gives access to those dashboards to their advertising partners. And then the advertising partners pay Facebook to place ads on the, on the platform. So they haven't yet determined whether or not Facebook actually is selling data, um, but there's a big battle happening right now. Got it, that makes sense. This is mm -hmm. interesting. So a couple more questions around this. Um, so, sometimes I can meet someone in person, like someone I've never met before. And like, mm -hmm. let's say we get, it's a business connection and like we get a, get a drink for like an hour mm -hmm. and then, you know, we go home and whatever. And then the next day I'm on Facebook and that person is showing up on my suggested friends. Mm -hmm. So is that Apple selling data to Facebook? Cause Apple, cause our phones were close to it. Like how, how does that work? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I know you're not like, this isn't like, like I'm kind of like talking about things that might be a little like in depth, but I'm just curious, like I'm super interested in this. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the markets are really opaque. So like- Right, and that's the problem, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, got it. So the only reason I know about the like Nielsen selling data to Facebook situation is because I've worked in the market before. Um, Apple, I have no idea what they do. Um, and notoriously, they're very private about anything that's related to data. Um, but you know, you're also talking about the occasion where you have a conversation with somebody on the street about you know liking their shoes, and then the next day the same ad for those shoes pop up on your you know 
Um, and there's a lot of speculation about like whether or not your mic's on and Facebook's recording what you're saying. Um, and I've read actually arguments on both sides. Like, you know, some people in Silicon Valley say that it's a myth and the algorithms have just gotten so good at predicting your behavior that they don't need to know that you had that conversation because they already predicted it before you had it. And then there are people on the other side that, you know, say, well, if you read the terms, like Facebook Messenger does have access to your microphone and could be recording all your conversations. So I don't really know what's going on there, but it could go both ways. Either way, it's really kind of invasive. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, so just like a couple more questions, then we'll go back 10 minutes and then you can keep keep talking about like what I'll expect when I get the email. I probably got it. I'm just not checking right now. So um so so i want to now cover spokio so i'm on it and what this what spokio pretty much does and correct me if i'm wrong is they use publicly accessible data and they scrape it in the millions or billions and then because maybe not anyone can just scrape like they do they then charge money for the convenience of having all the data cleaned and people pay for that instead of scraping it themselves is that like pretty much is that how Spokio works? Just like a giant scraping company? Um, yeah, they also claim to access like federal databases and court records. So, you know, there's also the, the like legal documentation or public record data that they claim to have as well. Got it. That's kind of, again, I have one last question on this realm and then, and then we'll keep going. Um, because, so when I started my, when I started Publoft, which uh, when I started when I started uh, Publoft, I um, the way I grew it was through cold email, and then I realized that there is a way to scrape a ton of uh, there was a way to scrape a ton of uh, data off of Crunchbase and off of LinkedIn. And then auto send emails, and I like realized this before it was cool, before it was popular. So I literally had like it wasn't a script, but it kind of felt like one where every month I scraped everyone who uh, raised money in the last month, shot mm. off an automatic email, and it was just like clockwork. And like in that sense, and I, I, I had tons of companies in spreadsheets. Like in that way, was I like a mini Spokio, like a mini data yeah. aggregator, uh, because I was scraping data that I paid for through Crunchbase and then just using it in a sophisticated way for my own benefit to like make money? Um, no, I don't think that qualifies you as a broker. Um, you're definitely a data uh, scraper. You, know, you had data scrapers, but you know, you had the rights to use that data. And I don't think there's anything wrong with programmatically collecting that data if you had the rights to that data anyway. Um, but yeah, data brokers, are by definition brokering just the data between two entities and the purpose of the data being used by the entity on the buying side of that equation is different than what the data brokers intended. Right. So yeah, you know, that makes sense. I think that's the definition. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for that, that 10 minute long MBA on data broke. <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful. Uh -huh. It's a fascinating industry. Yeah, it is just because, you know, these companies are, this billion trillion dollar companies that are soon to be trillion built on data you know just just straight up data and i just think it's a it's obviously it's a conversation in the country and in the world but it's just cool to understand how it works uh so let's go back 10 minutes or 15 minutes before we went down that rabbit hole you're explaining 
what I, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what an average user gets when they put in their email. So, so one thing you mentioned, just to recap for the listeners, mm-hmm. put in your email, anywhere your email shows up on the internet, you can see that. And then you were getting into something involving data and then I cut you off. So let's keep going. <laughs> well, now that everyone knows what a data broker is, um, some data brokers provide APIs and interfaces for people to check whether they're a part of that data file. So what I've done is I've created a master list of all the different data brokers that allow you to check. And I go through and check if you're in those data brokers. So you'll see a couple data brokers that you're a part of, you've been found in. Um, and then the third category of information that's also included in the scan right now is a list of account APIs where you show up as being a user. So from your email, I deduce what a likely username is for you. And then I go through a couple thousand accounts like Facebook or Instagram, and I check for those usernames. And if you appear in those usernames, I link to that public user profile. Um, And then so you have this like big list of links of where your information is showing up on the internet. Um, What I've also done is built like a little bot that goes through those websites and finds the opt-out link or the removal request link or the report abuse link. The goal being, okay, your information's out there. How do you really quickly shortcut the experience of like trying to remove or report it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and one question, this might be potentially a tough one, um, just but but it's just something I ha- I'm so curious about. So there was a company that has been ever under total fire in the last like couple of years that mm-hmm. did it that called Enroll Me. Um, yeah, and they, you know, they did it not what you're not exactly what you're doing, but they just like did subscriptions on emails. But the problem with enroll me is that they then sold the data. They, they took, they, they took that data and became, I guess the broker, maybe not. But yeah. yeah. The broker, which is, you know what it is. Uh, so mm-hmm. do people ever ask you, well, isn't like, aren't you just doing what unroll me is doing? Um, and I know you're not, but like, how do you respond? Like, how do you compare the, the two uh, to each other? I'm um, like, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think at the root of your question is like, how are people going to trust you when there's so much shady business going on? Um, Yeah, and that's actually probably the biggest hurdle for Canary um, is proving to users that we're not like enroll me and showing people that we're, you know, transparent and not doing anything else with the data than what we explicitly say. Um, So the first thing actually that from my conversations with users that signals to people that we're only doing what we say we're doing is that we're asking for people to pay us. Because if we just offer this for free, people like ask, wait, why, how are you making money on this? So, you know, it's hard to try to charge people up front for something they don't inherently trust, but it actually helps people trust you more when you ask for money. Um, And then the second thing is kind of related to that like future vision comment that you asked about earlier and it's like an architectural approach to the problem so there was like a lot of branding and like um communication challenges around building that trust and then there's technical challenges around building that trust and what i'd like to get to is like some really interesting technical implementations of the solution where when a canary user signs up to use canary your information doesn't even like leave your environment or leave your device And what people are calling that now is like more of a distributed computing model versus a centralized computing model. Um, The reason why I'm not starting there is because it's like really expensive to build in that way right now. But I understand that like there are some really interesting technical approaches to getting around that trust barrier. 
as long as it's not going to sacrifice people's convenience to be able to like really take control of their information, I'm like really interested in uh, pursuing those types of like technical implementations later on. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So I've heard from many people and also just the internet and the Twitterverse that the next, um, actually this is a term I coined, but it's been said in like various different ways, but I hope my version gets famous one day. The, uh, the billion dollar, the, the next century or sorry, the next decade of billion dollar companies will be built by solving the mistakes of the deck of the last decade, billion dollar companies. Hmm. And I, once I figure out how to say it eloquently, I think it'll sound really good. But <laughs> you obviously, this has been like talked about in different ways. Where do you think the opportunities are just for the next decade to capitalize on you know the unintentional but damage that that Facebook and Google and some of these companies have um, have done uh, um, just as a byproduct of getting so big? Like, what are some opportunities you see in front of in front of the society of the world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to respond directly to billion dollar opportunity because I think privacy is really complicated and I don't know how much private corporations should profit off of people's privacy. Like, I, I do believe it's just a fundamental right. And I think there's a lot of interesting discussion to be had about whether or not you should be making your fortunes on you know, this type of a, an opportunity. Of, of course, I would love to be a successful founder and have a successful product, but if that means sacrificing, you know, for the sake of a look, capitalism, like I'm not sure if that's where Canary's gonna go. Um, I'm also not like in a position to give advice to other founders in this space and say like, yeah, you should definitely go after this and try to make it a billion dollar opportunity. I would say um, the idea of a data marketplace and like being able to turn a data exchange into one that's more similar to like a stock exchange that we have today and making data more similar to intellectual property. If you were able to create some sort of like transaction model on that, like, yeah, that's where all the money would come from if you could be that controller. Um, but is that really like going after the, the future you want or is that chasing a, an economic number, you know, or a market cap. Let's yeah. actually, yeah. Let's, let's dive into that. It's something yeah. I, I, I think a lot about, and mm -hmm. I believe Keith Raboy coined this, uh, the, the being a mercenary versus a missionary. Mm -hmm. uh, so so the, 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 the rough idea is that mercenaries are what you just, what you just said, if they see an opportunity to make money and they mm -hmm. go for it, and then you got missionaries that are going to go for it regardless of external factors is just what they do. They're, they, they, they're on a mission and they don't care about external things. Hmm. Um, it's all, it's mostly internal. Um, so I'd love to, love to hear as you've seen, uh, you know, as, as you've seen, I guess as everyone has seen entrepreneurship get more popular, Mm -hmm. um, because of the internet, which is, I think it's a great thing by the way, but it has become more popular. And I do feel like I've seen more mercenaries than missionaries as the barriers to start a company or become mm -hmm. lower. I, I don't know why I'm asking this question, but it just kind of popped in my head in response to what you said. Like, I'm, do, what do you, do you have any theories on just the ease of starting a company now, not scaling, but starting, um, when cross kind of, thought about with you know that attracting the wrong people 
Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> hmm. A weird question. Attracting, attracting the wrong people. Let me phrase it. In, in, wait, wait, hold on. I actually, I have a better way to phrase it. I was listening to a podcast today with David Tish, who was a big time VC in New York. And uh-huh. he was saying, so he started Techstars New York. And uh, he pretty much said he thought at some point Techstars would attract the wrong people because it, the people that would go through Techstars eventually are looking for, like, some of them are looking for like a credential, like, oh, I did Techstars, like I, I have the credential and I can start a company, like look at me, it's a, it's a career mover. And he said he thought the actual true rebellious founders, they don't want a credential, they just want a company to, to you know, to be willed from them. Um, so does that give any more color to the question? If it's just a weird question, like we don't have to go into it if you don't want to. <laughs> Can I try to rephrase the question as Absolutely, I please. I, now I'm just worried I'd answer the question. Oh, no, you're good. <laughs> um, so your question is essentially like the barriers to entry are low. Are the people entrepreneur entrepreneurship are attracting, is attracting? Are the people being attracted to starting their own companies the right people? Yeah, it, I guess the yes, yes, pretty much. And and is that percentage of potentially the right people dwindling as more uh, more people see the opportunity to potentially make a lot of money? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's really just how you look at business and what its purpose is. Um, if you're somebody who's like more a classic uh, theorist about business, it's like how do I return? the most value to my shareholders, you know, it's like, and that's, that's actually great that there are more people starting businesses and able to compete. Um, yeah. And then I think if you're looking at more of like a, I don't know, a humanist approach, especially in technology, I'm not sure if that outcome is really attracting, I don't know if that the current conditions for starting a business attract the people who are motivated by that, the, the humanist approach. Right. I'm not sure. I'm not really giving a direct answer. Ask, that was a very weird question, but we're, okay. <laughs> but your answer was great. Um, yeah. yeah, for me, like the, the reason I ask, you know, because it, it, it's been on my, this realm has been in my mind a lot. Cause like, I, I kind of want to be a VC at some point. I think I'm like, okay. I get to like, in, in some weird way, like lightly play investor by this, getting people on the podcast and talking to them and stuff. I obviously I'm like broken. So I can't actually invest, <laughs> but like, it's just like fun. You know, it's, it, it's, I get to like it, I play a percentage of, of that life. And I just, um, I don't know. I, uh, I spend a lot of time just talking to like the people on the podcast who are just like, like they're visionaries in their own right. They have, they want to scratch an itch. They're just like these super awesome founders. And then I get a lot of people reaching out to me that are just, you know, it just, I feel like they're mercenaries and they're just on it for the wrong reason, but we're all switched to topic. I'm just kind of <laughs> ranting right now. So, all right. Um, a couple more questions for you and then we'll, and then we'll, uh, yeah, then we'll wrap it up. It's, it's uh, been a little over 30 minutes. So how, how do you think about the, the way that you spend your time? Uh, so you're an early stage company. It's a small team, but a good team. Um, time management uh not necessarily the tactics but like tomorrow how do you know what you're going to be working on um how do you how do you think through that i think about it in a way i read about um maybe six or seven months ago um and i read that benjamin franklin managed his day 
I, this is common for startup founders to talk about. So I probably am. You've never this like is the a first broken one, record here. The first one to mention this actually. No I, one. Really? Okay. Um, yeah. So it's like you make a list and the highest priority items are at the top of the list and you work on those highest priority priority items until they're done and you don't do anything else. Um, and if something else is urgent and it takes over priority, fine, you tackle that. But I think what's often common between or amongst early stage founders from what I've seen, I've worked with a lot of early stage founders, um, is like they have the shiny object problem and like the hard problems are really hard and you have to spend hours and hours and days and days just grinding on one piece of code. And that's like where the value really pays off. Like, you know, this canary stuff, just starting with emails to really hammer out. Um, but tackling those hard problems first is paying off. So that's just how I like, handle my day. I like have priorities. I tackle the biggest ones. Um, I don't stop working on them until they're done. Um, and then I think there's also like a little like side note on the article I read about Benjamin Franklin's life. And it was like, he only worked like six or seven hours a day, but it was all really well broken up um, across the day. And he took time to go on walks and like visit with friends. Um, I, I could probably send you the article after the, after we chat, but um, that's what I like to do too, is like, I try not to burn out because I know that's also a big problem, so. How do you know when you've done enough for the day? You, I mean, granted, you just mentioned that you were, you have your priorities and you, you just finish them. Mm -hmm. But as you, you also mentioned that some of these might take a couple of days. Mm -hmm. How do you know when to stop, um, even if you want to keep going? <laughs> well, I'm not a robot, so <laughs> there are, you know, like uh, limitations. And I think there are small indicators that my productivity is really failing. Um, spelling being a big one, the frequency at, at which I check my email being a big one. Like, and I think knowing those sort of habits that I fall into when I'm tired, um, if I start noticing like an increase in that, I'm like, okay, this is time for a break or time to call it. Uh, it's just those little things. So, yeah, for me, it's, I've spent three hours in a row on Twitter and I'm not going back. So I, just, I don't, I, I, so I spend way too much time on Twitter cause I pretty mm -hmm. much have a, it's pretty much a sales job during the day. It's a sales for the coolest company in the world, but it's still sales. So while the calls are ringing. I like sometimes check Twitter. So I'm actually mm -hmm. on Twitter a lot, but I'm not yeah. I'm still productive. It's like kind of, kind of interesting. Um, so what, what, what would you say is the, from what you've done so far with your company, what would you say is the number one lesson that you will want to, that you've learned that you'd potentially want to impart on people listening that want to start their own company uh, you're not that much, you know, you don't have this giant company yet. So I feel like they, they can, it's relatable. So, you know, you're a couple of months down the road. Um, so what have you learned so far? Um, I think it'll be very helpful for people that realize that, you know, it's not impossible to start a company. It's just starting. Oh yeah. I really don't feel like I'm in a place to give advice, <laughs> but it's not even advice. Just, just, pre I'm going to add one thing. Where it's just something that you've learned, like something that you've learned, in the, mm -hmm. like since you started, 
that you just think would, you know, it would have been maybe good to know when you first started or so, an insight that you gathered. It's not saying this is how to do it. It's just like, oh, this is what I've gathered from my experience and maybe you can get value out of it too. Yeah. Um, right. So I think the one thing I've learned from launching Canary is to be patient both with yourself and then also with your users. And by that, I mean, there are some schools of thought in the whole startup community where it's like, you should always be talking to users, but Hey, guess what? Users are busy. They have lives. They're not going to take, you know, an hour to talk to you on the phone and give you feedback about your shitty landing page. Like users are, you know, they, they're doing their own thing. That's good. Um, but just because it's like, you know, maybe hard to get an initial signal on your vision or your passion or your project, like that doesn't mean you should stop working on it because I think you have to be patient with your own ability to keep executing too. Um, so yeah, you would love to have like a tight feedback loop from your users to your development process. But I think um, being patient with that is probably my biggest lesson learned, just getting Canary off the ground. Look at that. That's probably one of the most useful things that, that someone, I feel like everyone says just get started, um, which is good, but that's like an actual tactic, which I, which I appreciate. I have one more question before I ask the same final question I always ask. And I've only asked this question for one other person, and it was Andy Sparks. And uh, Andy Sparks is the CEO of Holloway. And uh, as we had our conversation, I couldn't help but notice how well he spoke. He was very just eloquent. And I wouldn't say I'm eloquent. Like I, I have my personality and it's, you know, whatever. But I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the most eloquent person in the world. And I own that and that's fine. But I try to get better. And I noticed, you're, like, I noticed some qualities in you that, that Andy has, which is like you're a very good speaker. You're calm, cool, collective. And you just think before you answer and you give a polished answer almost every time. How'd you learn to, how'd you learn to speak uh, well uh, and I guess, how do you, how do you think about public speaking and have you had to refine it or is it natural? Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a compliment. Um, or I will take it as a compliment. Um, yeah. So actually I, I, I have to attribute some of my ability to speak to performing when I was a kid, like I was in theater productions, I actually studied music for a little bit in school, like performance. And um, then I joined, you know, a political debate society in college. And oh my gosh, I would go into every single debate meeting and my heart would be thumping. But it really just kind of teaches you the importance of preparation. And then, you know, the importance of constructing like a thoughtful response. Um, and then I also did a little bit of sales in my life. Uh, and that's helpful, right? Like being on, on calls with people and having to respond to questions. So it's just been a lot of practice. And to be honest, like I still get nervous. Like before this podcast, I was like thinking about what I wanted to talk about. And, you know, I was getting a little nervous, a little jittery aside from the Americano. So, um, yeah, I think, I think those are just sort of, uh, the things I should attribute to my ability to speak. Um, but you know, always can improve. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm yeah. sure even when I ask you extremely obscure questions, you still handle them with, with grace. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're crushing it. Um, so uh, cool. So final question time. Appreciate you 
coming onto the podcast. I have just as of recent, I would say in the last week, I've talked to three founders in different approaching this in different ways, but just all about data, like just data yeah. stuff. It's really a thing. Yeah. I think we're just beginning and I'm just learning a lot. So I appreciate you coming on. My last question for you is, you know, you're just getting started with this, the, the you know, the road ahead of you is exciting, uh, but kind of long and you might need some help along the way. Uh, and you got, uh, you know, however many people are listening to this podcast that are probably into what you're working on, that might want to help. So I am giving you an invitation to make any ask or request of, of the people listening to the podcast. What is something you, you need help with? What are you promoting? Uh, how, how can the forward thinking founders community help you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think just trying out and subscribing to Canary is the biggest thing. Um, and then once you're uh, trying Canary, like we'd love to hear thoughts about the solution, you know, possible red flags you're seeing, um, you know, like sometimes the icebergs are least visible to the captain of the ship. So, you know, like those sorts of uh, comments are really, uh, really helpful. So yeah, just check out the canary and, and try to be a little bit more um, proactive and aware of the information out there. And hopefully we can help you do that. And then I guess one true final question, if someone wanted to, um, to find you online or find canary online, uh, what are website links, social links, where can they get in touch and, and fulfill your ask if they want to? Yeah. So we're only in two places. Um, our landing page, you know, where you would sign up and, and test the product with your email. That's at thecanary.com. And um, something important to note is that Canary is spelled with a K. That's because of uh, domain trolls, essentially. Um, talk about mercenaries. Those people are mercenaries. <laughs> um, but actually, canary with a K is actually canary like the bird in Swahili. So it does, you know, sort of. It works out. Um, and then the second place we are at is on a Reddit sub-community. Reddit has been a super supportive community to, you know, get feedback and build awareness. So if you're a Redditor, check it out. All right. If you're on Reddit or you have an internet connection, you're able <laughs> to... Uh, to help out and get involved. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Honestly, fascinating stuff. And I wish you the best uh, with the, with, with Canary. So, so uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Best of luck to you too.